From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, Tammy Katzoff spoke with Rennie Jaffe, class of 1998, co-founder of another management company, a boutique artist management house representing Kurt Vile, Snail Mail, Stephen Malcolmus, Lucy Dacus, Waxahachie, and more. As with all of these interviews, the conversation begins by asking how and when Rennie became interested in his occupation. My earliest memories, I remember making, having like an old school, you know, shoebox size tape recorder, and I would make pretend radio shows um, with, I would have two of them going and, and tape back and forth and cut together you know, radio shows, my, my allowances were spent on records and cassettes from, you know, age four and five. And then I really became, you know, I was always super interested in not popular music. Uh, I was always interested in outsider stuff. Uh, what, you know, I was always passionate about being the first to hear about something and to listen to something. And I, you know, from, from a very young age and that, you know, both going forward with new releases and digging into niches and scenes and record labels and band members backwards. Um, to this day, I still do it much to the, we're running out of space. We've run out of space in our house for uh, records. And now most of them are here in my office. Um, but my curiosity has never really dwindled. You know, I, I see a lot of other people at like 25 and, and like the music they listen to when they were 25, you know, that's what they listened to for the rest of their, their life. But I wasn't blessed with that. I keep buying and buying and, and, and exploring. I was infatuated with it and still am in from middle school into high school. And then Muhlenberg had an incredible college radio station. And it was the school itself was a great fit for me. I wasn't built for a gigantic campus or a gigantic school. And then I found WMUH. And it really let me, you know, one, learn about and hear so many new releases and new records. Um, but then, it, uh, you know, I really got my first, my eyes were open to see that people have careers and jobs in popular music, you know, broadly speaking. And then at the same time, the summer between my freshman and sophomore years at Muhlenberg, I got a internship at a record company where I kept going in between each summer throughout my Muhlenberg, my time at Muhlenberg. And then I, after Muhlenberg, I went to law school with the intention of becoming an entertainment lawyer. And so I did my summer legal internships at that same record company. And then ultimately my first job out of law school was at that record company. Mm -hmm. So those two things happening at once really paved the way for where, you know, where I am today. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, let me see that, you know, this doesn't have to just be a hobby. Um, I can, I can make this my life. Are you allowed to say which record company it was? Sure. Yeah. It's not around anymore. Uh -huh. uh, or, uh, you know, it's around a name, but um, it was a company called Ryko Disc. You know, it was a pretty great record company, but that was the first label to commit to compact discs in the eighties. So they saw a window, and I had, I had nothing to do with this. I was still in elementary school when this was going on. Um, but they saw a window where 
Compact discs were on the horizon. A lot of the big record companies and individual artists didn't see it yet. So they went and got licenses just for the compact disc format from David Bowie, the Frank Zappa estate, and hundreds, thousands of other artists. And then it turned out to be, you know, CDs became gigantic, obviously. So that's where I worked. Ryko was not just a record company, but also a music distribution company and a music publisher. So I really got thrown into the fire and exposed to a lot of different aspects of the music industry, gratefully. You know, I very easily could have gotten a job at a major label and just worked in the radio department, um, Mm -hmm. which would have been great and cool. But where I found myself, I learned about all these different sides of the music business at once as a blank slate. Can you just talk about what artist management entails for, for those of us out there who don't really know what it means to do that? I break it down into two different spheres, what a band manager should do. One is organizational. You're sort of quarterbacking all the different, when a band gets to a certain point, there's a lot of people in their lives and businesses in their lives. There's a record company that puts their music out. There's a music publisher that administers the compositions, the songs behind what they write. In some artists' cases, they are working with other songwriters to get their songs to the point where they're able to be recorded. Some publishers look for other people to cover the writers that they represent songs. And then publishers also There's all kinds of residual monies that are due to songwriters throughout the world from both the play, sale, and performance of songs. So a publisher responsible for collecting all that income. So a manager interfaces with the publisher. There are booking agents that get bands, concerts, and tours. And so a manager is the face of that as well. Uh, There's your merchandise, your t-shirts, sweatshirts, doodads, a a manager oversees that. And then there's like keeping track of all the money and all the income streams associated with that. The music industry is, at least in my corner of it, a lot of it is making sure you're collecting every nickel and dime that's due to you. And those nickels and dimes hopefully add up to pay your rent and your mortgage. But it's from all over the place. So it's not like when you're a band, you're not getting a paycheck from one source every other week. Your income is coming from, could be upwards of 15 different sources. So a manager is responsible for keeping that organized and making sure that everything that's due a band is collected and paid properly. Then the other side of it is creative. That's what I pride myself in and what I think I'm good at. I have built a team around me at my management company who are great at a lot of the organizational stuff. But what I love to do is work with musical talent to execute an artistic vision from what producer do you want to work with? How do you want this record to sound? What studios do you want to be in? What do you want the cover of your record to look like? Who do we want to take promo photos, when do we want to release a record, what record label should we work with to put the record out, what bands should we go on tour with, if we're doing a tour opening up for um, the National in June, when should we come back on our own, how should we come back on our own, 
et cetera. So that's what I take pride in and, and like guiding bands on is sort of what the A&R of working with a band. So let's talk about the pandemic and how that's affected not only your job, but the industry, not only in the present, but going forward. How are things going to be different? How are things different now? And how are things going to be different in the future? I mean, things are pretty different now. I haven't slept in the same bed for seven months, eight months consecutively since always since my time at Muhlenberg. I'm used to, I travel a great deal. I love it. I love traveling. It's a, a benefit of my job that if I had started to take it for granted, I no longer do in light of the pandemic, but I haven't been traveling and neither of really any of my, any of the bands that I work with. So generally speaking, no matter what scale you're talking about in 2020, uh, whether we're talking about a band that would play a coffee house to 35 people or a band that is playing in front of 3000 people in, um, in a theater, no matter what, scale you're on most bands make their money playing concerts and tours that's where the lion's share of income comes for for bands in the digital streaming era so this has really turned that upside down and put a lot of bands and then also all the management companies booking agencies and venues obviously in a tough spot as far as uh, the artists that i work with I sort of have across the spectrum, all different scenarios. I mean, a few of the bands that I work with, um, we're going to be in a quote unquote off year, making a record this year anyway. But then I also had Katie Crutchfield released as we're here. Uh, I'm getting updates. Uh, that's what the chiming is in of like her end of the year list ranking. Her record was just is number two at Stereo Gum, number two at Guardian, um, which is all really great, but she would have been on tour for, she would have played 120 shows at this point on the record. She couldn't do any of that. Now, what happened as a result of that, she's been home for the most part, and I got her a gig writing original music for a television show that's going to come out next year. And that actually wound up netting her more money than playing all those concerts would have done. I mean, I think that in an ideal world, she would have rather been on the road, but it still is pretty amazing that we were able to sort of save her year with that. And she was one of the first to really do, we came up with a really cool live stream gimmick for her that really was on the early side of the live stream trend. Now, now you can see any band you want any night of the week, it feels like on live streams. We did her series pretty early and it was super successful. It was great. She played all five of her records once a week for five consecutive weeks every Monday night. And it went great. And financially, between that and the television show, she she did better this year than we were projecting with the touring. And she wouldn't have been able to do either of those things had she been on the road. When this all first started, I remember I was supposed to go to South by Southwest this year, which happens every March. At that point, it was early on in the pandemic and uh, no one really knew what to make of it. I mean, I was gonna go. My hesitation at that point in early March was not that I was gonna get sick or that there was this threat of COVID, but that I might get stuck in Austin, that the planes may not return, that I could get there, but I might not be able to get home. Mm. Then that got canceled. When that happened, the music industry really 
was shook up. Then Coachella got canceled where I was supposed to go as well. At that point, I remember I had three different tours. I had Stephen Malkmus was supposed to be on tour in March. He put a record out in March. Waxahachie was supposed to be on tour and Kurt Bile were all supposed to be on tour at the same time, March, April. I remember thinking like my March, April is going to be totally insane. I'm not going to be home at all. Sure enough, I was home for good. <laughs> but at that point, we were canceling March, April shows and we rescheduled them for June. We thought this is just going to be like a month or so. Then we rescheduled them for September, October. That, you know, no. So then at that point, Kurt's stuff just got straight up canceled. Katie's stuff got moved into next year. Today, we canceled Stephen Malkmus's tour for good. That was supposed to be in March, April. Yeah, it's not good. I have a bunch of tours booked for this time next year, which mm. fingers crossed feel um, feel like they might be possible, but who really knows? I mean, then beyond that, it's what is this doing to the economy? We don't know that yet. Most of the people that go to the concerts that I'm working on, the bands that I work on are younger people who don't have tons of discretionary income as a general observation. So how, what's, this, what's that going to mean? It's also whenever the world opens back up, every band is going to be on tour. In every city throughout the world, whenever bands can play concerts again, every venue that, that will still be in business will be booked for a year. It will be the most competitive touring concert climate in the history of music. Um, mm -hmm. period. We used to look at when setting up tours for the bands that I work on, we used to have a general sense of, here's the routing we want to do. And we would know like, okay, this band that's kind of in our world, you know, is going to be in the same city or room four nights later. Maybe we space it out. It's really going to be like, you're going to be competing with your friends' bands in every city for a year plus once the world opens back up. And we also don't know. It's highly likely that, yes, bands can tour, but our venue is going to say only two-thirds capacity can come in. Are they going to say, because we're only letting two-thirds capacity in, we're raising the price of tickets with service fees by 35%. All those things are, I would say, on the menu and, and probably likely. Music is not the only industry that has had to pivot and figure out new ways, different ways to get a product out. What do you think, even when things get back to quote unquote normal, what of those pivots are going to re remain? What's still going to be around? What are the new ways of thinking that are going to carry forward? Well, I think sort of what we were speaking on before, live streaming is not going to go away once live stream concerts are not going to stop once in real life concerts turn. In fact, I think it's going to be, you're going to see, and this is a bit of the gigantic promoters and venues squeezing artists, um, but I think you're going to see situations where, oh, you saw Wire in Philadelphia last night? Send three more dollars and you, you can see the stream of them in Washington, D.C. tomorrow night and see them in Atlanta on Thursday, etc. I would bet money that that happens. I think that this whole thing has, it used to be for 
my formative years in the music industry, um, the record labels were always sort of the power brokers in the ecosystem of being a band. I think that between the rise of downloads into streaming, into live streaming concerts, their grip on how the how people consume music is loosening. And I think that that is going to change uh, and continue to change. I'm not sure. I mean, I think there is definitely room for good record companies, both big and small. I do think that record companies add value to artists, but I think that artists, the other side of that is artists don't need record companies to get music into and to create fans anymore. Um, That isn't to say that artists don't need record companies to create lots of fans. But uh, when I was a DJ at WMUH, I would handwrite letters to record companies to ask for a catalog to be sent to me. I would include a dollar for an envelope and a catalog. I would get a catalog sent back to me. I would then fill out an order form, analog, pen on paper, to order records that I had no idea what they sounded like, send it back in the mail with a money order or cash, and then hope that my order was returned with, you know, four, seven inches of bands that I'd never heard yet, of songs that I've never heard. And that whole process could take eight weeks. Now the kids that are with Paul at the radio station can, when I first started talking to Lindsay Jordan of Snail Mail, I went to Baltimore and she was wearing a Psychic TV shirt uh, as a junior in high school. I had no idea what Psychic TV was when I was a junior in high school. It took me years of digging to discover what throbbing gristle and and like we're taught this is very obscure music that is now at anyone's fingertips mm-hmm. so the whole you know every you know the people's relationship to discovering and listening to music has changed and i think that the pandemic really sort of maybe pushed the fast forward button on that what do you see as the most challenging aspects of your job and what are the most rewarding if those are two different things. Challenging thing in the short term, you know, with the pandemic, you know, I'm ultimately responsible for making sure these artists uh, have a living financially, um, which I sort of came into artist management accidentally. I am blessed and have made choices in my life to only work with artists who I love and whose records I would buy, I, I had been buying and would be buying regardless of any sort of quote unquote, professional relationship. I'm very lucky and grateful that I'm not in a position where I have to manage bands that I don't love to make ends meet. So that's really been a, you know, a wonder for me. But the challenge is, um, yeah, uh, keeping, I mean, I'm lucky that I work with bands that are people love. Um, Yes, I think that had Waxahachie been able to tour this year, he could have made $100 and instead only made $75 this year. Imagine the scale. But um, luckily, she is a lot of people's favorite artist and people want to support her. I'm fortunate to not have to, that I don't work on bands where I'm having to twist people's arms to donate to a GoFundMe or, you know, please buy this or that. One thing that I say to myself and the other the folks that work with me at 
the management company is like, I only want to work on people's favorite bands. And I can say that for every artist that I, that I work with, this is every one of them is a lot of people's favorite band. Mm. Um, and that's a high standard that I think I've been able to maintain. And, you know, with that comes a passion for those artists that the world feels. So we've been lucky enough that no one that I work with is like in danger of being out in the cold. Mm. But, you know, if there's no vaccine and there's no, and live concerts are never able to return. Yeah. I, I, things need to be completely rethought. Mm. Because as a, you know, as like I said, as an artist and as a management company, you know, the touring income, the commissions that I as a manager make on touring and then touring as a part of the artists themselves economy accounts for 75 plus percentage of their income. So if that goes away, things are going to change for artists in this world. In other countries, from our neighbors to the north to a lot of the European countries, artists are supported by the government and are offered grants in some territories just as a matter of course. Receive a supplement from the government to be an artist because those governments value what art brings to culture. Um, we're not so lucky here in the States, but we may need to consider that because i mean I, I don't want to imagine a world without without music that would be very scary yeah so finally let's turn it around on a lighter note for someone listening whether it's a muhlenberg student or alum or anyone else who wants to do what you do what words of advice would you give them what what guidance would you give them if they're if they haven't even started yet my modest success has been propelled by my passion for music. And I would say that I've been really lucky. Um, you meet people who go to a nine to five and don't love their job uh, and never really found, you know, are, 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 you know, working for the weekend. And I've been really blessed. I don't take it for granted that my profession is also my passion and my hobby. You know, unfortunately, that's, a lot of people in our society don't have that blessing. But WMUH really helped me hone in on that and, and really sort of begin to see that, you know, there is an industry. I knew pretty early on that I was not going to be able to have a life as a musician. <laughs> so WMUH, I was able to see that there's an ecosystem built around supporting musicians and artists and bands. And I latched onto that and I explored every little niche that I possibly could from, I, like I said, I found an internship at a, I forced my way in the door at a record company. And then after, after I left Muhlenberg, I went to law school. And while at law school, I, I became a concert promoter. I didn't know what I was doing, but I just started reaching out to bands that I loved and said, hey, if you come through Pittsburgh where I went to law school, you know, I have access to this community center. I would love to put your concert on. And then that turned into during the four years I was in Pittsburgh, I was doing some, some weeks, five concerts a week uh, with bands that turned into be, you know, Death Cab for Cutie, Bright Eyes, bands that became really big. I was doing their first concerts, their first tours just by, I had no idea I would I had no idea what I was doing, but I just did it. I had no idea how to ticket. Everything was 
cash at the door. I gave all the money to the bands. I had no idea that other promoters in other parts of the world might keep 20% of this money. Never occurred to me. And and that's not why I wanted to do it. But whatever it is that folks are passionate about, push your way in. Explore every little corner of it. Radio was was my first taste of that. And then I wasn't just satisfied being the DJ. I wanted to be the music director. And I wanted to be on the phone with the record companies and the promotion companies that were calling the station and talking about music. I wanted to do that. And then I wanted to work at a record company in the summer. And then I wanted, like I said, I wanted to become a, I wanted to put on concerts and then that wasn't good enough. I wanted to open a record store in the, in the room that I was doing concerts in. So I reached out to distributors and started buying records in and selling records at the venue that weren't in the stores in Pittsburgh and so on and so on. Um, So whatever that is, whether that's, you know, a writer who is, wants to get into publishing, push the doors open and don't be afraid to do it yourself. Figure it out. It can be done. I had no idea what I was doing. I fooled a record company into hiring me to be in the business affairs department and write record contracts. I had no idea how to do that. And it took me years to be able to know how to do it, but I did it. And that's what led me to being in a position that I was able to take my best friend in Kurt Vile and get a major record label to listen to his records and want to sign it and turn it into something that was on late night TV last week, his 10th plus appearance on television. Nobody knows how to do everything when they graduate college, um, no matter what they tell you. I certainly didn't, but I wanted to learn. And it's stuff that I didn't, there was never a class, but I just was ravenous. It was what I knew my life would be. And the money followed and the the career, quote unquote, followed. There's a quote that we like to use at the Career Center with with students uh, from Milton Berle, who, of course, they've never heard of. The quote is, if opportunity doesn't come knocking, build a door. Yeah. So totally. it's very fitting. Like I um, said, the music industry is in a time of revolution and evolution. It's going to be kids. It's going to be 18, 19 year olds that figure out what's next. It's not going to be me, a 45 year old. It's going to be whatever the next band camp is, whatever the next, you know, live streaming platform is, whatever the next thing is, is going to come from a kid in college somewhere. This episode of 2400 Chew was recorded remotely and produced and engineered at the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop was performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band.